Welcome back to Why Care. I'm Reshma Sajani with Tim Allen, and we have an amazing episode for you this week. Uh, we got literally some of the smartest minds in the space here with us. Later in the episode, you're going to hear from Betsy Stevenson and how we got to this place. After that, we're going to have some fun getting into why our leaders in Washington have or will not or have not do what they need to do. Um, so, but first, Tim, let's catch up. What's happening in parenting this week? Hi, my friend. Uh, I have to tell you, it is one of those. So the flu has gone rampant. And last night I was up pretty much every hour on the hour dealing with, you know, the uh, crying child, sick kind of, you know, it's funny. They sleep in bunk beds now. And it is the exercise of trying to keep one asleep and making sure you don't make too much noise while the other one is- Oh, I got bunk beds too. Oh, well, the other one's projectile vomiting. Like, I don't want to be too graphic for the audience, but literally I'm talking <laughs> exorcism moment last night. And I was like on my hands and knees at three in the morning, cleaning it all up, patting his back and being like, everything's going to be okay. And in my mind, I'm going, it's not okay. I don't know what's going to happen. Like, this is not okay. Uh, so yeah, I would say it's a really fun time right now. <laughs> um, but you know, hey, that's that's the joys. I actually had that thought last night where I was like, you know, have you ever thought that you're like, they say have kids. They say it's the joy of your life. They say this will be great. And at three in the morning, I was like, mm, I'm reconsidering all of those decisions. Like I was like, I was, I don't know if it was the right no. one. I was like, wow, what my life would have been like. Well, if I especially wasn't having them here. later in life, yes. right? Because like I'm tired. tired. This is when I'm supposed to be like sleep, sleeping or like drinking margaritas, whatever, which one I'm doing neither. Right. So I didn't do the sleep during my twenties, right? Like I was like, oh, let's leave no. my twenties. But, and now that, you know, I'm in my forties, I'm like, why did I not take advantage of that opportunity? So I told Yes. Absolutely. But how about you? What's going on in your world? How are how are the kids? How's oh life? my God. I dropped my kid off at school when they didn't have school. That was not fun. <laughs> um, I'm just so overwhelmed with work, like especially last week, right? I'm I'm fighting a book banning fascist all week. So I heard you rebel rouser. I am, you uh <laughs> I am like, you know, this call, this thing, this thing. And I guess I had signed my kids up for a three-day a week program. But I thought it was five days a week. So, you know, on Tuesday when he does not have school, I took my little two-and-a-half-year-old to school, you know, run through with my ear pods on, right? And then the teachers know me, so they're, like, totally used to it, right? And they're, like, put him in his room. And it's funny because I walked in the classroom. They didn't have his cubby ready. That's, like, mm. some other kid's picture. And so the teacher's like, no, 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 it's okay, Reshma. I'll just move Sean's picture here, you know? Yeah. And she was so sweet. She knew I was dropping him off on the wrong day, but I would think she was like, am I confused? Or like, but let me leave him there. And then I run out, right, before anybody can stop me. And like, they're calling me, but of course I'm on nine different calls. So I'm not picking yeah. up the phone. And then realize they're like, just wanted to let you know he doesn't have school on Tuesdays or Fridays, so um, we'll keep him today because we can't get a hold of you. But just for next time, I oh. was like, "This is I, I. This is how like I am not balancing everything. Like I'm not. I mean, I didn't even know what days I had signed my kid up for school. Wow. Yeah. No. Hey, you know, it's funny. We've talked about this before. There's little grace in parenting when there's a mistake made because it is like a mistake. Like you're dealing with someone else's life, right? You're like, oh my gosh, I left side school. Didn't have school, right? Like you're like living this moment of like, <laughs> what is going on? And it's so personal. It's like, how do you not make it go? Like I screwed up because like, you know, look, we all, it's like, there's no room for error in parenting. Right. And it's like, that's no. crazy. 
And it's so relevant to what we're talking about today, which is also like, now I'm like, what am I doing on Tuesdays and Fridays with him? Right? Because I had thought that I had school every day and I was like covered, right? From like nine to one or whatever. So it's also just like, again, how the system needs to just be fixed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to, to your point, you know, Hayden's at home, sick. We don't have emergency backup care. You know, like there's not like a thing where I'm like sitting here going, oh, I have this all mapped out and planned out at four in the morning. And now I'm like trying to manage. Luckily, I have a job that allows flexibility for me to be able to work from home and do the, but like a lot of people do not like, this is not one of those things that's common. And I go, this is, this is, you're right. The system is just broken in a lot of ways in that regard. And we've talked about that. And it's hard. I mean, we were, I got, I was so lucky to see my friend Ketanji, um, get sworn into the Supreme Court, you know, on Friday for her uh, for her ceremony. That's right. And my husband was going to bring down the kids because there's a bunch of events during the day. Of course, like, you know, our, our child kid, our, our babysitter gets sick. She was going to come with us. So now we're like, okay, wait, like, this is a big moment. Like, yeah. how does Nahal get there? Leave the kids at home. Who's going to take care of them? How do we then get back from D.C.? You know, it's just, but it, it's like that is just, again, I think what parents are experiencing and juggling every single day. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it is one of those things. I mean, it's just no matter how big or small the moment, like it, it is just parenting is a the literal full time job, but is a full time job full of surprises at every moment around every corner. It's like you cannot map out life, which has not done, I think, me any good because I'm really bad at it. So <laughs> I wish I was better. Oh, but great. Cool. All right. Well, I know that we have incredible, incredible guests today. And I know that we're going to talk about a lot of amazing topics. And, you know, before we get into the interview today, I want to do a little table setting and I want to lay a couple ground, you know, some of the facts out for everyone. Um, Just to just a level set, because I think a lot of this is known, but I don't think a lot of it's said very often. So, you know, one of the first things that we want to talk about is inside the pandemic, half of American families lived in a childcare desert. You know, a lot of people ask me even today, what is a childcare desert? What does that mean? Definitionally, childcare deserts are areas where there is not childcare available, meaning daycare, meaning nanny, meaning full-time babysitting. It is a literal desert in order to find childcare. If you're not related to someone who can help you take care of a child, finding childcare is next to impossible. So half of Americans live inside of these childcare deserts, which I think is an amazing stat for us to keep conscious of. Because, you know, those of us who live in major metropolitan areas go, oh yeah, we'll hire a babysitter, we'll get a daycare down the street. That doesn't exist for the majority of Americans. And that means one out of every three, for every three kids, there's only one daycare slot available. And that's wow. that in and of itself just is mind blowing if you think about it, right? And Also from the pandemic, more than 16,000 daycares have permanently closed. So not only during the pandemic was there already a pre-existing condition of this childcare desert, you had 16,000 additional daycares closing, which really forced childcare deserts to become more expansive. It actually exacerbated the issue that was already in existence today. Huge wait lists. I, you know, like... We haven't talked about this before, but I remember there was an article about three weeks ago where there was a daycare opening in the middle of Arkansas, and there was a line that lasted overnight, bless you, by the way, overnight that then went into uh, the parents waiting close to 18 hours just to get a single slot inside of a daycare. That was just crazy. It's just crazy that parents are having to do this. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Costs keep going up. You know, you talk about daycares, there's, with inflation, with supply and demand, not only are there less slots available for kids in order to be able to participate, but there's also now more expense 
hitting the family. Uh, daycare rates today, the average weekly rates around 226 bucks. That's up 5% since the pandemic. Unbelievable. Nannies are up significantly as well. They're at $694 with, with what a much deserved wage increase and labor pool, but it's still more expensive hitting the bottom line for the parents. And finally, there's the care workforce. You know, we've talked about this extensively, you and I, Reshma, people who do some of the most important work for our economy, they're underpaid, underappreciated. They don't have benefits. They don't have portability of benefits. Many of them are paid under the table. Um, but there's a huge demand, and it continues to grow. And so we are really faced at this moment in time with how do we continue to find opportunities for families to find care? How do we really empower parents to be able to have care for their children while they're working or while they're having these activities or unexpected events that we were talking about earlier? And how do we meet that demand? How do we continue to get more people into the labor workforce and make it an attractive job, make it a job that is a profession that people gravitate to and really can take pride in getting paid the right value and getting the benefits that they deserve? It's a bad cycle. It's a vicious cycle. It's a bad cycle. Yeah. Well, and I think what's so, the the big part of this is like Americans already can't afford childcare and then we're not paying our childcare workers enough. So we don't have enough people in the industry. I mean, that stat that always, like when we say we pay our zookeepers more than we pay our childcare workers, always just like blows me away. So I'm just so excited to hear about from Betsy about this later. But what is the solution, you know what I mean, to this crisis? Yeah. Is it one solution? You know, the thing I'm always thinking to myself is, how do we do this in a multi-pronged approach that we're able to tackle this simultaneously, right? You know, Build Back Better was supposed to do that. There was a lot of activities that were supposed to do that. I know we're going to get into a lot of that today, but I'm really fascinated to hear what Betsy has to say because I think that uh, as we can start to map out this uncharted territory, it really is going to be interesting to see what actions we can take collectively in society and what are the things that we can actually invest inside of. I know it's one yeah. of the things- And how do we move- no, 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 go ahead. No, 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 finish your thought. Come I was going to just say, Tim. hey, <laughs> I was only going to say, I know when you and I have talked privately, this is one of the big reasons that caused us to, to get this podcast going. It's how do we give a voice to what's happening out there in the caregiving community, the caregiving world for both families and caregivers themselves? And how do we really come up with solutions as a collective? How do we talk about these things? Yeah. So. And how do we change culture? You know, one of the things as a mom, I feel like people are like, well, you figure it out. You decided to have a kid. It's your choice, your problem. You know, it's not the government's problem. It's not your, your you know, your, the private sector's problem. It's not your employer's problem. It's your problem. Yeah. And so how do we move out of, like, I feel like the difference is, is like, you know, my friend Alicia Gupta and I were on a panel, you know, she did, we did a panel together. She had this amazing slide about and how, you know, the United States has the largest amount of women participating in the workforce, but then the least amount, right, when you, like, who are kind of, com- the most amount that are coming out at the end, and it's because of childcare. Mm. And other countries have figured out how to solve this problem from a societal perspective, but we keep putting it on the individual to solve, and we're not making any progress. And so I think deeply what is embedded in our inability to pass policy on this is because we still think it's in the personal reign. Mm-hmm. Like it's still a personal thing that government is not supposed to get involved in. Um, and how do you change that? And I think Bessie's going to have a lot to say about that. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I actually think a lot of people, both parents and non-parents, share that point of view. I hear a lot of parents, I, I call it uh, parent-on-parent crime, which is they will say, oh, well, you chose to have kids, or I have it figured out. And it's like, 
that doesn't necessarily, because you have figured it out, doesn't necessarily mean it is fairly figured out for everyone else. And I do think that we have to start to look at it from a lens of, guess what? Okay, yeah, chose to have kids. Does that not mean we can't have a structure that actually supports us having a career and having a life and having the, everything that we like? One, it's not mutually exclusive, people. It's not mutually exclusive. You can have it all, you know, like that's the thing. Exactly. Um, so, and we can invest in things that we may not also have. I may not be a parent, but I may want to make sure that parents are adequately cared for. Yeah. 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 It's it's so interesting you say that because a lot of it becomes to the back to the personal point right it's if you don't have a kid what's in it for me and I know a lot of my friends who don't have children are like well yeah that's that's a you problem and I'm like it is a me problem but one day it's going to be a you problem yeah, <laughs> and exactly you, and you exactly. want me to handle it now exactly. right or your sister's problem or your family member's problem you will someday face this problem in some degree of your life so help me now or you know like deal with it later yes exactly <laughs> or, or, or like you're gonna deal with it later all right well let's bring up betsy so betsy stevenson's our first guest today she is the former chief economist for the department of labor uh, professor of public policy and economics at the university of michigan a renowned expert on care in america she is literally one of the most brilliant people i know like period i Every time I get an opportunity to speak to her, to hear what she's saying, to read something that she's written, um, I j it just makes me feel smarter, right? I'm like, okay, like I feel informed and I feel like she sparks ideas and new ways of thinking. And I think that that is really, 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 really important. So welcome, Betsy. Uh, thank you for Hi, having Betsy. me. It's great to talk with you. Awesome. It's great to talk to you, too. Yeah, we're really excited. I can tell you. It's one of the things I've been looking forward to for a while now, so thanks for making it. <laughs> I feel like there's so much to talk about. <laughs> so much to talk about. So oh, well, let's start with like, the grim care? picture. Nah. <laughs> right. <laughs> so Tim paints like this really grim picture. Is it it's true? It's actually mm. worse. <laughs> like, it's worse mm. because <laughs> what we now layer on, right, I, I feel like, you know, Tim, you painted the picture I've been talking about for years, and now we got to layer that on to an economy that's just had the highest inflation we've had since the 70s. And guess who's not getting the pay raises? Childcare mm -hmm. workers. So maybe that's good right. for families. The cost of childcare is not rising as fast as the cost of everything else, except for who wants to do that job. I mean, if, yeah. if we got to, yeah. I mean, we're sort of stuck in this like awful place, you know, where... Um, you know, I was testifying in front of Congress and, and one of the women there was somebody who talked about uh, workers walking out of their child care center and taking a job across the street because it paid better and, and hating that, wanting to keep working in child care. But how do you do that when, you know, it's paying less than anything else? And and I think that's just been, we got to see the wages go up. With, and if the wages are going to go up, the prices are going to go up. And if the prices are going to go up, how are the families going to afford it? So how? <laughs> that, I mean, that's, that's <laughs> our problem to solve, right? That, that's why yeah. this is not a personal problem. It drives me crazy when I hear people describe this as a personal problem. I mean, th this it's sort of uniquely American, right? It's like... When you have a baby, it's like, that's your new toy. 
And then we don't admit that person to the human race until they turn 18. And then all of a sudden government's supposed to have something to do with them. Your baby's not your toy. It's a person. And government's supposed to yeah. represent all the people, right. including the littlest people. So, right. I mean, it's not a personal problem. It is a societal problem where we're trying to think about how we take care of people. That's like, you know, saying that people starving to death in retirement is a personal problem. You chose to get old. Right. Could have died. Right. Like, that's crazy. <laughs> right. So, Betsy, take us through the history a little bit, like the Lanham Act. Is that how you say it? Um, was it always this way? You know what I mean? Is this something that's, is there something about rugged individualism, deep American culture, American history that has put childcare in that position? Uh, walk us through the history a little bit, legislatively. Well, I mean, legislatively, there's a bunch of times where it looked like we were going to get childcare and then we didn't get childcare. And uh, I mean, there is a sort of, you know, I think in the U.S. it's always the case that that these kinds of policies have had knife edge moments where we could have gone the other direction, mm. and we'd be living in a totally parallel universe right now with like happy kids who've been invested in. And you know, sometimes the knife's edge goes what I would call the right way. Right? The U.S. was the first country to make high school free and publicly available. The rest of the world laughed at us and said we were crazy. Why do all these people need high school? That's a fancy education. And then by by giving access to free and universal high school, this crazy thing that no other country did, we set ourselves up to have the fastest economic growth and the fastest period of productivity gains in the history of our country and maybe the history of any country. So, you know, that's one where the knife's edge went the right way. On on childcare, it's almost always gone the wrong way. Now there is this, you, you mentioned the Lanham Act. That, that's sort of, a, I, I don't think of that as like, we once had childcare, now we don't. I think of that as like, we had a proof of concept. It proved itself. Why did we walk away? So if you go back to World War II, you guys have all heard of Rosie the Riveter, right? Mm-hmm. Well, why did we need yes. Rosie the Riveter? We sent all the guys working in the factories overseas to fight in the war, and we needed to send moms into the factories. And we told women it was patriotic to go in the factories, but we had to do something with their kids. So as part of like a defense act, right? It was actually a... Um, that the what's called the Lanham Act was actually the Defense Housing and Community Facilities and Service Act of 1940, right? This thing was designed to make sure that people who worked around, who lived around the factories that were needed for the war mobilization effort um, were able to go into those factories and so they needed childcare. So, um in order to increase employment which was of women, which was a national priority at the time, they came up with the money to have free, universal, high-quality childcare. And guess what? The moms loved it. The kids loved it. The kids grew up who got access to it. Because not, not every kid, this was in particular areas of the United States. It wasn't all over the U.S., the kids who got access to it ended up being more successful on average as adults than the kids who didn't. Like it worked and it wasn't that costly, 
But more importantly, it was an investment that at the end of the day paid off. And I, I think we, we have mountains of evidence. I mean, Rachel and Tim, we'd have to talk here for hours and hours if we were going to go through all the evidence of how investing in kids early on leads to uh, higher wages and greater economic growth. We know that this is an investment that works. The question is, why don't we do it? Yeah. So, okay. Thinking about, so is there any insight into then, so we should, we know that it works. And then when the men come back, we want to push women out as though we don't renew the act or what happens? Like it was a defense time act. Like why does the defense department want to take some of its budget and pay for childcare? Like that's the, uh, but you know, we, we've studied it. This is long enough ago. These, these children have grown up, mostly lived their lives and mostly passed on. So we actually know what happened. And, um, you know, the, uh, we saw high school graduation rates went up for those kids. College graduation rates went up for those kids. Employment as adults went up for those kids. Um, you know, it it was helpful to the kids. And I, I think when we talk about childcare, part of the problem is there's two things we're trying to do and they get sort of mixed up. And instead of us saying, wow, here are two great things and two great reasons, It's like somehow neither reason works well enough. Um, But the two things are, if we have childcare, then parents can work. And when parents can work, they can bring money into the house. And when you bring money into the house, that actually helps kids out immediately. Um, Particularly, uh, you know, lower and middle income kids where you make it just easier for that you know, household income to be high enough that they can live a a sort of reasonable standard of living. But the second reason is it turns out kids actually do well when people, you know, who are knowledgeable about early childhood education spend some time with them when they're young. Like Mm. my kids and, you know, Rachel, you talk about sending your kid into preschool and, you know, the benefits of preschool is not just like you have a place to put your kid, but actually your kid's learning really important skills about how to be with their peers and how to act and how to uh, wash, wash their, their hands and cover their, their nose. Right. Cover right. Their right. Yeah, it's how true. To, how to sing as a group, how to identify their colors, mm-hmm. how to um, you know play cooperative games how to maybe sometimes play competitive games. Like these are all things that we have to learn. And, and they, and they're, it is actually important that we, we teach kids at the time that they're most receptive for the right lessons. And I think of myself, I think myself as a pretty good mom, but I wasn't an expert in what kids need at every single age. And I brought in experts early childhood yeah. educators who could make sure that, you know, with when my kid was three, they were learning the things that is age appropriate for a three-year-old. And, and there's a whole body of research on that that shows that, you know, if you do age appropriate de- child development activities with kids, they grow up with greater skills because you can't just randomly teach, you know, 
you know, at what you feel like teaching them about at age three. Like there's things that their brain's receptive to and ready for. And then there you're also, you're building a scaffolding that further learning is going to get built on. So we don't start with roofs and then come back and lay foundations. We lay foundations and, you know, early childhood education is all about laying the most solid foundation you can. Yeah. When you have the experts actually weighing in on the curriculum, the child's learning, plus the peer aspect of it, but so you're really talking about an aspect where I know my kids really develop. It was incredible that pre-K year learning and seeing them develop because, you know, they were able to identify their emotions. They were able to identify how their peers handled things and then mimic, and then also learn from influence. And it really was in the environment of being fortunate enough to have a pre-K program that was publicly funded by the school district and by the state in and of itself. So it's incredible that you talk about this. Talking about the knife cutting both ways, it seems like it's been a really long time since the knife has cut the other way. Meaning we're talking wartime, (laughs) we're talking Nixon almost had something going on, Bill Back Better was just on the cusp of actually doing something, but it doesn't feel like the knife has actually cut the way of public education and childcare in quite some time. The thing I always say is, it feels like we're still in an old farming system within schools, right? You've got the eight to two model, what parent stops working at two, I have no idea. Um, I'm sure there are some, but I can tell you the majority of people I know don't stop working at two, and it becomes a thing of picking up your kid. It's where have we not been able to get traction? Like where, why has the knife not gone the other way to the positive in, in recent history that I can actually acknowledge and think of? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the U S is so, um, driven by like the squeaky wheel gets the grease and Mm. that's sort of how our political system operates. It's also like, uh, typically operates in a crisis, Right. When you think about what, when was the last time we did something because we thought it was the right thing to do rather than we were confronting a crisis and needed to take some action. So if we're, if we're constantly creating policy in a crisis, I mean, that's how the Lantham Act got passed. It was a crisis. We, we needed people to work. I feel deeply sad that the crisis that was the pandemic, it did create a moment where we might've gotten more for childcare and then we didn't. And I'm not sure that it's gonna be easy to to do it now because we're a country that governs in a crisis and that crisis passed without us getting it. (sighs) Betsy, was it because we weren't squeaky enough? Mm. I can handle (laughs) it if that's what you think. Mm -hmm. Is that what it was? I mean, in some sense, it's got to be, right? Like, Yeah, I, I feel that way, too. The airlines got their handouts. No, yep. like, why? Uh, and, you know, I think the problem of child care essentially comes down to the fact that when you need child care the most, when it's the most salient to you, you're too busy <laughs> struggling mm-hmm. through it. And to exhausted. Be squeaky enough. And it's really going to be up to people who pass through this time in their life where they no longer need childcare. And, you know, I'm, I'm moving into that myself now. My kids are 10 and 13 
And all of a sudden, with my 13-year-old, the school's perfectly fine to keep her till 6 o'clock at night from 7.30 in the morning. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> After school activities, but, you've got it all now, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, oh, no, she has, she, you know, she has chorus and she has volleyball. And she has <laughs> Such and, a good point. So, it's so true. Uh, you know, the, but it's going to be up to people like myself as we move through it to, as you have even more time and energy to fight on this, to just keep reminding yourself how important it is. And, you know, I, I the costs are real. People are not having kids because they don't know how they're going to afford childcare. And, and that is not, I mean, that might be about, it's about childcare. It's about discrimination in the workforce. You know, I waited to have kids because I didn't think I'd ever become a tenured professor of economics if I had kids too young. And, Mm. you know, I wish I was able to have had three kids, but when you have your first kid at 39, it's not that easy to make it to number three. Yeah. Um, no, we're on this. We're on this. I feel the same way. We're on the same schedule. I had my first kid at 39. I wanted three, but now yeah. shop is closed. So <laughs> I tell my daughter, if she waits till 39, I'm going to kill her. <laughs> but, like, it's, but I waited because we are not a society that is welcoming of parenting. You know, we're. Yeah. And that, like, we don't we don't have an infrastructure for it. We don't have a workplace for it. And it is, like, fantastic that there's so many opportunities for women. But if we're not, I think we need to be approaching parenting as not a women's issue. It's a people mm-hmm. issue. And yeah. we need you know, both parents to be playing this equal role as caregivers. And we need our workplaces to, to make the, the adjustments necessary to fit parents in, you know, when I was in the white house, um, you know, I was an advisor to president Obama in his second term. And this is what I worked on was working family stuff. And I had a, 10 month old when I started and and a almost four year old. And people would say to me like, Oh, how do you like do it? And I was like, you know what I do? I I go home. I got to see my kids uh, before they go to bed and I go home so I can see them. I don't always eat dinner with them, but at least I see them before I put them to bed. And maybe I get up early in the morning and miss them in the morning, but I'm going to see them at night. And I make sure I read that story. And I made time on the weekends and you know, I never felt guilty, even if I left before other people, because I was like, you know what? This is what you have to do if you got parents with kids this young. And if you don't, then you're missing a really important voice. Like in your workforce, if you're like, oh, no, everybody here's got to work 16 hours a day. Well, you can't get an active parent. And that means that you need to know for sure that having not, you know, the, that having an absence of parenting voices in your workplace is going to be the right thing for your business to, to succeed or your government to succeed. And I think a lot of the times it's not. You need the diversity of voices and that includes parents. And so you, we need to make these adjustments. Also, lives are long. Yeah. Working lives are long. Parenting is short. Yeah. It's so short. You know, most people 
will spend 50 years of their life working. Think about that, right? Because most people will take some kind of job around age 20, and most people now work until age 70. So 50 years, what, you're going to have two kids, and they're going to be under five for what, six or seven years out of those 50? And we're fighting to get 12 weeks off of paid leave? That's like six months out of 50 years. That's 1% of your work time, right? Like it's crazy. crazy. And the problem is we can't push our kids. We can't have our kids when we're that old, Reshima. Like we got as old as we could and then like hit terminal time. So, Yeah. yeah. You know, we've got to be more open to the fact that people are still in the ambitious part of their career when they're having children. And we want to make the space for them to continue to be in the ambitious part of their career. And that means having an infrastructure like childcare, having an infrastructure like flexibility at work. And it means realizing that all sorts of people are going to wax and wane in terms of when they have you know, the gas all the way down and they're accelerating in their career and maybe they're going to let it up a little bit for a year. That doesn't, we don't take them off course. Yeah. So what's your lesson from the pandemic, right? Because essentially millions of women were pushed out of the workforce because of childcare. Um, We haven't fixed the quote childcare problem. Businesses learned a lot for a minute in allowing for flexibility, hybrid work, right? First, it was all about, well, there's no productivity loss. Then two years after the pandemic, suddenly it was like, oh, there's all this productivity loss. We have to go back to where it was before, even though we ha- we, we recognize for a minute that what we're, what going back to where it was before is untenable for working women who are mothers, because in particular, who are doing the caregiving work. So wait, well, what's let's the just start with the facts, because, you know, the Federal Reserve just had its big Jackson Hole conference. And somebody presented research on what happened to productivity during the pandemic. Productivity declined in industries that require face-to-face work, and it really increased in industries that allow work from home. So there weren't productivity declines from working from home. It's the opposite. There were productivity gains in those work-from-home industries. Um, You know, there are, what we see is people still want to work from home. And moms want to work from home more than just about anybody else. Parents want to work from home more than non-parents. Um, there is a concern that this could lead to, you know, sort of further gender gaps. But you know what? Women have been paying to get flexibility in the workplace for a long time. And now we're just sort of quantifying it by saying, oh, look, they're they're willing to give up. There's a recent study that found like, you know, women were willing to give up wages uh, more than than men. Um, in order to get that workplace flexibility. But we've got a a long history of research. Claudia Golden is a scholar at Harvard who's shown that, you know, women don't choose investment banking because it's not very flexible. And Mm -hmm. as a result, they go into industries that pay less. Instead of becoming lawyers, women become veterinarians or or pharmacists. Why? Because those are industries where, you know, with a, a veterinarian, if you work three days out of the week, you make 60% of the money as if you made five. So at least the ratio is fair. You know, in investment banking, you try to cut your hours 
down by 10%, you're going to lose 60% of the money. That's the, that's the problem. So women have been paying for flexibility by moving into professions that um, penalize flexibility less, but pay less overall for a long time. Um, And now we just have another, I, I think another dimension which is some businesses that didn't used to let people work from home are going to now let people work from home just gives them another place to get that flexibility. So I think in the long run, it's still good. I do. Even though it is going to be the case that women are going to be more likely to pay for that privilege than men are. Um, hmm. I, I think that we've drawn attention to this as a national problem in a way that we hadn't drawn attention. And we've started to shift the conversation. So my hope is that we can continue to push on that. And let me give you another factual reality. Women have come back to work faster than men because women are still the ones that are really delivering when it comes to the US economy. Um, Between 2015 and 2019, the fastest growth in labor force participation was among women outpacing men. And we had hit the highest labor force participation of mothers ever. And we are easily on the way back to hitting those highs and exceeding them. And so this problem isn't going away because women aren't going away. They've invested too much. They graduate from college at rates higher than men. They have more workplace experience They're having their kids at older ages, which means they're coming into motherhood with more years of experience in the workforce. So they're not going away. And my hope is that post-pandemic, we're going to keep agitating. And, you know, I think we're going to see this November. Can women deliver at the polls when the Supreme Court takes a very fundamental right away from women, which is the right to make fertility decisions for themselves? But but I want to just ask you one thing, because what you just said, because sometimes people will hear what you said and they'll say, well, so they're back to work. Why do we got to fix it? You know, why do we have to offer them childcare? Why do we have to do more paid leave benefits? Why? I mean, they're back to work. They figured it out. What's your response? Yeah, they figured it out. What's your response? Well, one is that they're not having children. So we can put ourselves into one of those situations where we become one of these countries where we don't like we have a very, very low birth rate, but I don't think that's sustainable. I mean, this comes back to the point, like, what is government representing? It's not supposed to just, it's not like just representing the people who are here right now, what they want in this exact moment. You know, Tim, you, you talked about people who don't have kids who are like, well, you know, what what's in this for me? Well, do you want to be able to eat when you're retired? Because you can save up all the money, but right. if there's nobody providing the food, then what are you going to do? Right. Like we actually need the next generation to, if we want to live in retirement, then the next generation has to grow up and be willing to do the work so we can spend the money. Cause all the money is, is a right to buy into the stuff that is currently being produced. And if we decide we're done with the next generation, we don't need no stinking next generation. And we got to work and all we're going to get to eat is what we produce ourselves as we get old. So we actually need the next generation. And, you know, you can end up like Japan where they got washing machines for old people because they don't have people to wash the old people. Yeah. I mean, a lot of what you're talking about, Betsy, is just it, it, it just strikes me as like we 
we it's a team sport we're playing individually you know like coming from either the collection of trying to advocate for child care right we treat it like an individual issue taking care of ourselves as we we age we a lot of individuals just think okay well I'll take care of myself or I'll have the money to take care of my, or I'll, you know, I'll hire somebody to do it. but if there's not someone to hire right to take care of you you it doesn't matter how much money you it does this is society is a collective and i think a lot of people get so into their individual personality behind it that they go that doesn't impact me when in actuality it does it does impact you you talk about yeah. coming to the polls in november do you what do you see in the future? Do you see it's possible to create this collective? Do you think society can have this moment of awakening where they go, okay, got it. We really need to like, like I, I just feel like the world just needs to get smacked with an aha moment. And I would think that the pandemic would shake everyone and go, this is it. Like, this is it. We have to take care of each other. You have to invest here. If not that, what? Like, what What do you think happens here? Yeah. You know, my hope is that I, I wish people could deeply understand the inflation we're facing right now has nothing to do with money and has everything to do with people wanting to buy more stuff, more goods and services than we can possibly make. That's what inflation mm-hmm. is. Like, we make a bunch of stuff. We have a bunch of workers available. And if people want more than that, it's going to get bid up. And so if we don't have a next generation, like your money's not going to help you. You got, there's, because everybody's going to be trying to find the workers that don't exist, right? What you, you we need to be in a sort of stable society where as you're aging out of something, somebody else is coming into it. Um, So, you know, maybe people will come to appreciate what it means to, invest in a society. I certainly think like younger people today really understand that there is this collective benefit to coming together. I do really, I hear, I, my, I see my students and they're, they are different today. They, Hmm. they, they really do seem to, you know, they just watched, you know, uh, a really difficult what should have been a really easy response to a public health crisis become incredibly difficult and lead to more pain than was necessary. And I I think they're starting to understand that and trying to figure out how we bring people together to decide on what kind of society we want. I think the thing that worries me the most is that instead of coming together and deciding what's the United States of America going to be like, we're going to start to form smaller groups, right? And that might be at the state level, at the local level, you know, where you can be like Massachusetts, where we, they, they dealt with giving everybody health care long before the rest of the United States did, right? So we, and we see other states are, states are starting to take action on preschool, on uh, child care. On child care. Yeah. We just introduced a Marshall Plan for Moms bill here in New York so City for child, universal child care. We are going to end up with a country where there's just massive inequality based on where you want to live. Now, maybe people will vote with their feet um, and try to relocate. um, And that will just lead us to be more sort of bifurcated. I, I, I do think right now the movement has moved to the state and local level. Um, 
I guess the at the you know at the federal level, what I would say is what we really need is businesses to realize that they would much rather deal with one set of federal regulations than 50 sets of state regulations that all differ in a way that makes compliance more of a pain in the butt. And then we could get companies actually working to get one uniform program. Um, Yeah. And, you know, that, that could happen. And the more plans you get across the state level, the more you'll get businesses agitating for like, one federal plan. I think the biggest yeah. problem there is then what happens is every state is like, no, no, we want to keep our plan. It's like, you know, we want it to be our way. We don't want to, you know, go back up into a federal plan. So. Especially if it like forum shopping for living in states becomes things that employee employers or employees are doing yeah. because of the benefits that they're offering. Or in the case of abortion, like I know I'm my human rights are protected yeah. here. Yeah. So that's where I'm going. Yeah. 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 I mean, the it, the problem with the whole forum shopping is obviously, you know, that's easier for higher income people to do. And so yeah. um you know, it, 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 it makes things even, you know, more awkward at the federal level. I mean, we already have a situation where mostly states that vote Democrat, vote for Democrats, end up subsidizing states that vote for Republicans in terms of where our federal tax dollars go. And, you know, at some point, this the states that tend to elect Democrats and are building out all of these these safety nets for their populations are going to get sick of doing that redistribution at the federal level. And so you'll get everybody on board with shrinking the size of the federal government. Um, and, and I think the real losers there are, you know, low and middle income families who don't find it easy to really Can't afford to live in New York and yeah, California. Or, or, yeah. or can't afford like can't pay the price, which would be to sacrifice everything they know in order to relocate, you know, to Washington state. Right. So it's not just the hot expensive states. And also there's plenty of places in California that aren't expensive to live. Um, But, you know, picking up your, picking up and leaving your community, particularly when you rely on your community, maybe for that low cost childcare, the people who pick my kid up after school, that's expensive for people. So forum shopping is a privilege, not something that everybody can do. It's the infrastructure. I mean, you're, you're, you're nailing it, which is a lot of the infrastructure for individuals resides in their community. You know, their parents live down the street. They are the child's care for when they're at work, right? They've got to take care of the older generation. They can't move away. They don't get the Mobility opportunity, which is going to further just create the divisionalization. I completely understand. It's, it's, yeah. it's how do we avoid that end road? You know, like one of the things is you will see the states start to, to galvanize around their policies, the 50 states, right? You'll have some who will flight out to those states who have the mobility option, but many who don't. And then I guess it's the advocacy that needs to happen on the local level with people voting with their, the vote, right? It's to get out the vote. It's voting with their mouths. It's actually creating community forums. Is that what you, would you say that's the the big indicator of how to create it on a tapestry across the nation? You know, I, I, I think that 
Or do we burn it all down? <laughs> I'm just, I, I mean, I'm stuck. I don't know. Like it's, you know, I one look, I, what we have to do when it comes to childcare and sort of other things for families is we have to be getting our act together and finding a way to turn whatever weird political crisis creates an opening for us and then moving as fast as possible to like take advantage of that. And, you know, and we will face a crisis with social security that is going to open up a whole can of worms around like, how do we fund uh, retirement? How do we take care of older people? How do we take care of younger people? Um, There, we could end up with another, you know, a big recession. We could end up with a big world war. Like there are a lot of potential crises and those, you know, it's a time to make the case for investing in, in young, it's being ready to make the case to invest in young people when there is that opportunity. And, you know, it doesn't feel like it's the, the opportunity is not there right now, right? Like build back better, drop childcare. And we're about to face, uh, you know, there's not much happening in Congress. So we move things to the state level and then we hope for a space to, you know, to, to bring it back and to, decide, Hey, you know, we want to look after young people. You know, I'll tell you a fact that's like one of the most, I, to me, like hopeful, but depressing facts, which is, you know, before social security, the population in the country that was most likely to be in poverty was older Americans. They were the most likely to be in poverty. Then we passed social security. Now they're the least likely to be in poverty. So who was the most likely to be in poverty? Children. Then we passed the child tax credit as part of the American Rescue Plan, and child poverty fell in half. Yeah. But we just let it go. So now we're going to see a big increase in children going back into poverty. <sighs> it really... Well, that's, It's depressing. That's, uh, it's depressing because... It's depressing. We're going to, what we really have to figure out is how do we give children more of a voice in our political system? Do we lower the voting age to 16? I don't know. Like, well, I, I mean, I would argue this is something we're thinking through in, in our, I mean, I think the parents' rights movement is kind of only something that right now exists on the right. And so we have to embrace it like on all sides of the political spectrum and, and build it. I totally agree. And, I totally agree. I like, and redefine what it means to be have a parent's agenda or a mom's agenda, and that's what we're working on at Marshmallow for Moms. And but it's something. It's a, it's interesting that we just we've conceded that one side is the party of family values when that's not the case. Mm. Um, and so we have to reclaim. I, that. I completely agree. I mean, and it's it's horrifying to me the way that the right has been able to galvanize this parents' rights movement. And, and in, I can see why it's successful. Like as a mom, I want control over what my kids, I, I'm a controlling mom. I like, read. I'm like, no, you aren't watching this movie. No, you aren't like doing this. Yes. You can yeah. read, you know, in my household, my, my, my 13 year old daughter's allowed to read anything she wants, but I still won't let her watch shows that 
like are <laughs> and I'm I'm like, look, it. it's totally different because video can make things look real and you become desensitized. If you have to use your imagination to imagine the sex or violence in the book, I'm okay with it. Right. But that's you're well, like, that's great. Yeah. But, and I get that that's, I like having my my freedom to make my rules for my kids on like my kids laugh. Yeah. I got so mad because one time at school when my daughter was in the second grade, someone showed her the Minions movie without my permission. Can you imagine? Minions. And, <laughs> and my, parent, my kids are like, mom, what's wrong with the Minions? I was like, well, they're really rude. <laughs> All right, Betsy, I'm making you a chapter head of one of my states. But like, so, you're like perfect. so I agree with you. Like why? I mean, we need... What we need a a movement on the left, which is like we're we want we need to recognize that parents have preferences. Yeah. That's that's fine, and give them space. But then also make sure that that there's space for the preferences of the parents on the left. I need my kids to know our yeah. full history. I need my kids history. to know, um, you know, to treat everybody with respect. I want my kid to wear a mask if he wants I, to wear a kid. I, a mask. I, yeah. My right? kid like, absolutely should be able to wear a mask if I say they should wear a mask. Who are you to tell me my kid can't wear a mask? Yeah. Like it, it's, right. it's the exact yeah. parallel. But somehow they're the party of parents' rights. And like my rights are getting stomped all over. My kid has to go to school with somebody who's not vaccinated. That's a violation of my rights. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I agree with you. Like, I don't know well, how we like take back this idea that, you know, parents, you know, n- need to be supported and that they need a party that's doing what parents want. And, I, you know, even on, on childcare or early childhood education, like all the proposals that the Democrats have put out have basically been choice proposals, school choice. But we don't yeah. talk about it that way. And yet we could have gotten a lot more, could have reached a lot farther into, you know, conservative, independent families by saying, look, we just, we want you to have the choice to put your kid in the childcare you want to put them in, but we want it to all be affordable. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah, we do need a rebranding. That's exactly right. Well, rebranding, remarketing. We do. <laughs> Betsy, this you gave us a lot of 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 fodder to kind of start that conversation. So this has been such a treat. Thank you so much. Thank you, Betsy, you. for blowing my mind multiple times. Thank you. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> Good to talk to you, Ben. Awesome. Thanks so much, Bye. Betsy. Bye.